there's a saying at Pixar that story is king. Steve Jobs essentially bought us from Lucasfilm when he had been kicked out of Apple, so he had $150 million to play with. We ended up burning through $60 million of his money before the company finally went public. The Pixar theory, it's a lovely little fan theory. Sorry to say, it's not true. Wally is a character who just innocently goes through the world spreading humanity. It's hard to remember sometimes that while we were making that movie, Steve was making the iPhone. The iPhone came out about the same time as Wally did. We didn't make a single movie for kids. We made movies for us. We made them for adults. Then we had to make sure that they were okay for kids. My voice was on the phone system. I think if you call the main number even now, you can hear me saying, thank you for calling Pixar Animation Studios. And when we got bought, I went into the system and I changed the message a little. said, oh, oh, hi, everybody. <coughs> thank you for calling Pixar Animation Studios. Hello, Craig. Hi, Andy. How are you? All right. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Where are you based, Craig? Uh, I'm in Vallejo, California. Oh, uh, what else is that? Uh, the San Francisco Bay Area, if you picture the the bay, I'm at the very top of the bay. It's kind of the north north end of the bay. I don't know if you've ever been to this part of California or not. I lived in San Francisco for like nine months, so I sort of know there's like San Francisco, there's San Jose, there's across the bridge, which is called forgot it is and that's Maine or, or yeah there's the East Bay which is across the Bay Bridge yes but yes. if you if you go north from Berkeley uh if did you ever go to Napa or Sonoma um I don't think so I remember okay uh, my friends would take me on these things called like canyon runs where they would drive through the mountains and it sort of was on the coast it was sort of where a lot of people retired in San Francisco um I don't know if that was towards the Napa Valley sort of direction. Yeah, if it was the coast, that was up Marin County. If you go from San Francisco to Napa or to Sacramento, you have to go through Vallejo. So like how I first came about you, Craig, was I grew up on Pixar movies. I've been a fan, like watching everything from like Incredibles, Toy Story. Um, like I grew up on Pixar movies and I was watching this old documentary clip on YouTube talking about, it was like the good old days, talking about how you guys got into 3D sort of animation and then that then sort of connected to, I, I read Steve Jobs' book maybe a few years back and sort of his journey of sort of buying Pixar and going into that and then remembering stories of like how like Toy Story was rewritten multiple times so and then that times. was like that was a catalyst for me to be like, oh, I want to sort of reach out to some of the founding sort of members, some of the original team members in Pixar and, and just have a conversation with them on my podcast. And that's how I found about you, Craig. Okay. Somebody dug deep into my IMDB when they sent me the email. My, uh, they, they were listing so many things. My, my daughter laughed and said, oh, this, this sounds like your eulogy. Did you die? <laughs> Craig, I guess please share with the audience sort of a bit about who you are and sort of what you've worked on as well as sort of what your main focus is now. Okay, well, uh, my name is Craig Good. I'm currently professor at the California College of the Arts. I teach visual storytelling there. But starting in what May of 1983, I joined Lucasfilm as a uh, member of General Services. So we did the... Uh, janitorial and security work there. Then uh, the short version of the story is that Ralph Guggenheim, 
who was uh, heading the software effort on digital editing at the time, uh, gave a programming class to people who worked there, and they let me take it, and that led to an entry-level job with the Lucasfilm Computer Division, where I became what I called a digital janitor, taking care of the backups and things like that. And then I fell in with a bunch of guys known as the graphics group, uh, you know, Ed Catmull, Alvy Ray Smith, Lauren Carpenter, Tom Duff, Tom Porter, a bunch of names that'll mean something if you know computer graphics history. And uh, they taught me stuff and let me do stuff, and one thing led to another. And uh, when Pixar spun off in 1986, I went with them. And I worked on, I think, about 10 Pixar features and a whole bunch of shorts over that time. I worked on the first three Toy Stories, Monsters, Inc., The Bug's Life. Uh, my big drum solo was Wally. I touched every single shot in that film. Yeah, it was quite a ride. There's there's the short version anyway. Is Pixar a storytelling company or are they an a animation company? Uh, I would say it's primarily a storytelling company that primarily uses animation to do that, uh, and mostly 3D CG animation. But they're not necessarily married to any given method for telling the stories, but they, they tell stories cinematically. Yeah. Given that sort of every sort of company has caught up when it comes to animation, how has Pixar differentiated themselves or how do they tell better stories compared to other studios? If like at first maybe their 3D animation was like, wow, that's so cool and people watched it for the 3D, but now everyone has 3D animation. How does Pixar still stay on top of things? And I guess, is there a unique thing about your storytelling process within Pixar? It's part of the culture there. Uh, there's a saying at Pixar that story is king. And that's not just a marketing phrase. That's really what drives everything. There are a number of things that I think make Pixar remarkably consistent. They haven't stumbled very many times. And part of it is that it's a director-driven studio. Uh, there aren't suits telling people what stories are going to be told. Movies are made because there's a director who has a story they want to tell. And that makes every film kind of personal. And I believe uh, one thing I learned is that you should always make movies that you want to see. We were making movies for ourselves. And the directors are making the movies they want to see and tell telling the stories they want to tell. So I think that's the root of it right there is it's a direct or that it's a creative driven studio interesting now who are usually the directors is it usually sort of in-house pixar team members or do you guys bring in sort of you know these big name directors that want to collaborate and work with pixar and they sort of work on a movie as if they're working on a movie in, in any other studio it's really in-house there have been a couple of sort of exceptions, uh, directors who were well-known to John Lasseter. Um, John dragged Brad Bird kicking and screaming into the studio to do The Incredibles. And Brad was so sure that it was going to fail, that it was going to just blow up in everybody's face, that he spent the first, I don't know, several months walking around with this Canon prosumer camcorder that he had, documenting it, because he was going to make a documentary about how his time at Pixar was a failure. <laughs> It was really funny to watch him uh, walk around with that. And he brought a bunch of his people with him. So he was kind of the exception. Most of the rest of the directors are people who had been at Pixar for a while. When you talked about sort of 
storytelling is king. You know, I'm recently looked into, and I haven't read yet, but Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey, instead of how every story or the Star Wars follows this sort of hero's journey. Can you make anything and just put it into the hero's journey and it would work? Or there's much more sophistication and it's not that simple? Uh, the short answer is it's never that simple. Um, I remember Ed Catmull telling us uh, when he had the unpleasant duty of replacing a director on a film, he said, the way we make movies is just hard. It just is. You can know structure and the hero's journey and all these things. And it can help. And everybody working on the movies, especially in story, know those things and learned them. But I think Michael Arndt described it really well. He was the screenwriter brought in to write Toy Story 3, uh, who told me after he got his Oscar, he said, the only reason I got an Oscar is because Pixar is the only studio that understands that it takes three years to write a good script. He said that writing a movie is kind of like climbing a mountain blindfolded. And you might think that the hard part is, you know, knowing which rocks to grab to pull yourself up the mountain. But the actual hard part is finding the mountain. It just takes a lot of time and work to get a story that works well. When we made Toy Story, we knew that it was going to look brand new and, you know, crazy unusual to everybody at the time. And we figured that would keep the audience's attention for maybe 10 minutes. And after that, if the story wasn't good, the movie was going to fail. So tons of work went into that. Uh, <laughs> it went so slowly. I remember the day we were in the graphics room and John Lasseter walked in and said, you know, I just realized that we've been working on this movie longer than we were in high school. And we all kind of went, oh, <laughs> don't tell us that. Yeah, it takes a while and it's, it's hard, but yeah, understanding structure and storytelling technique, it's like any other kind of art. The better you understand your tools and techniques, the better art you can create. But the tools and techniques don't create the art. You know, filling in the, plugging things into the hero's journey isn't going to get you a good movie any more than, uh, you know, color by numbers is going to get you a painting to go into a museum. When you said that you guys have been working on the movie longer than being in high school, how long were you guys working on Toy Story? Well, it's hard to know where to count because it started off as an idea for a holiday TV special because we thought we were going to have to do those before anyone would trust us to make a movie. And then Disney said, no, we, we know you guys know how to tell a story. Just go ahead and make, make a feature. And so, oh, yeah. And then it started getting expanded and, and worked on. And it got worked on a lot. I think it ended up being a total of five or six years uh, but only the last three or four of that was actual production, you know, ha having a crew actually making a movie. Was it a partnership with Disney or did Disney own you guys at the time? Did Disney own Pixar now? Uh, Disney owns Pixar now. They bought Pixar in 2006 or seven, something like that. No, we had a, a sort of partnership. There was a, a three picture deal where Disney was going to distribute and um, and fund production. <laughs> One of my favorite things about that is that Disney was worried about funding a potential competitor. So they told Ralph, okay, we'll pay for the computers you guys use, but at the end of the production, we want to own them. And Ralph said, okay, sure. Because you know where all the computers went by the time we finished production. They just went in a dumpster because they were old, right? They're so out of date. But yeah, that we, we had that deal with Disney. And who was Ralph? Was Ralph one of the 
heads of Pixar when it was in Lucasfilm and, it, and he broke it off. Um, how did Pixar came to be? Okay, Ralph Guggenheim became uh, the producer of Toy Story after the spinoff, um, but he was a software guy at the Lucasfilm computer division. That, to give you a quick history of Pixar, I have to give you a quick history of the computer division. Hmm. George Lucas was very forward thinking, and in 1979, he started this computer division with the goal of getting three things. He wanted digital compositing to be able to replace optical. He wanted digital audio, and he wanted uh, digital editing. And those were all science fiction at the time. Uh, so Ed Catmull is the one who got that going. Ed, Ed was the real founder, Ed and, and Alvi. They came in from uh, NYIT, New York Institute of Technology. And Ralph was a very early hire, as I recall, to get that going. The digital editing part of the, the computer division eventually spun off as a company called Edit Droid. It was the really the first nonlinear editor, and the timing in the marketplace wasn't quite, quite right. They started selling machines just at the same time that they went bankrupt. But the people who came out of the ashes of that started a new company called Avid, which you've probably heard of, and that editor you know, is a descendant of EditDroid. Andy Moore and the digital audio people spun off in a company that I think kind of still exists, but they pioneered a lot of digital audio. Computers in 1979 could not do audio. There just wasn't the processing power for it. So that was a, a pretty big deal. And then there was the graphics group, and that's the core of what became Pixar when we spun off from Lucasfilm. Uh, George needed the money because he was going through a very expensive divorce. And in California, your spouse gets 50%, and that was a pretty good chunk of change in 1983. So he was a motivated seller, and Steve Jobs essentially bought us away from, from Lucasfilm. And uh, we started off being a hardware company, and there were just a little tiny group of us doing animation kind of off in the corner. At one point, there were a lot of layoffs, and uh, I got laid off one morning and found out I'd been rehired by the time I got into work because the uh, head of sales said, well, I want these little cartoons for my salesman to sell this Pixar image computer. And Ralph said, well, if you want the cartoons, I need these people. So that kind of saved the animation group. And then, you know, general purpose computers rapidly overtook the special purpose hardware that we were building. And uh, that part of the business, well, it didn't really fold. It got sold off. And uh, then I remember in Point Richmond being in the kitchen one day when Steve Jobs handed out these T-shirts that said Pixar Animation Studios on them. And uh, that was a very emotional moment because... We went from being a handful of guys working in the hallway, literally working in the hallways, to owning the dump. So, Two questions. Yeah. Why did Steve Jobs buy this sector within Lucasfilm? And secondly, why do you think he went ahead and gave you guys a shirt and was like, hey, I'm changing this company completely and I'm going to turn it into an animation studios? You guys that are working in the corner of the alleyways and halls, you guys are now going to be the core of the business. I would not claim to know the mind of Steve Jobs. <laughs> he saw a business opportunity, and I think I, I think he recognized that there was some some potential there. And this was in the days when he had been kicked out of Apple, so he had 150 million dollars to play with. We ended up burning through 60 million of of his uh, money before the company finally went 
public. And we were we spent 10 years one day away from going out of business. And he did try to sell us a couple of times. But I remember being at one of the holiday parties when uh, John Lasseter had been, we saw him chatting with Steve and then John, really excited, came running over to us and said, guys, guys, Steve just realized that Pixar is going to be his big company, not next. And then he ran back off to talk with Steve. You know, that was when we were making Toy Story. And I think he realized, oh, there's, there's really something here. Steve was really smart. He knew business and he, man, could he negotiate. You wanted Steve on your side if there was negotiation going on and you did not want to cross him. <laughs> but he knew he didn't know filmmaking. So he let John and Ed do that. He let the people who knew what they were doing do that part. And, you know, he never insisted that we use Macs. You know, we, the Pixar used the computers that were best for the job. There are a lot of Macs around in Pixar, but the actual animation happens on Linux workstations and things like that. Steve didn't like Linux very well, but he didn't have to use it, so it didn't matter. And what was Steve Jobs, like how was he handling Toy Story as it kept being rewritten? It was a six to seven year journey. That was gonna be your first sort of product as a studio. And he's just burning cash every year for six to seven years. He's, you know, probably for the first few years, there's nothing to show or you're rewriting the script. He has no idea if this is going to be a good movie or not. Like, what is that experience like for him while you guys are just trying to make this movie over six to seven years? Uh, fortunately for us, he was very busy with his other company, Next. And we just didn't see him very much. Mm. So, you know, every now and then they'd have to go to him to ask for more money to keep things going. But he was busy doing other stuff. And uh, like I say, it wasn't until Toy Story was kind of done, I think, that he realized, oh, this is really going to happen. Uh, and then he was smart about taking Pixar public right as the movie came out. I was standing next to Steve in the screening room the moment he became a billionaire. You know, it went from having burned, you know, 60 million of his dollars to, you know, we looked at that stock price and did mental arithmetic. And yeah, suddenly you're worth more than a billion. He looked very happy. I had never seen him look quite that happy. You know, he he wasn't, you know, fist pumping and celebrating or anything, but he just looked really nice and happy about that. And then after that moment of releasing Toy Story, it was a screening success and he the company went public. He's now worth over a billion dollars. What does the next few years of Pixar look like from there? Uh, well, a couple of things happened. One, he went back to Disney, renegotiated the deal since we had the cash now to you know, have Pixar fund its own movies and get a much bigger share of them going forward. Like I say, it w when you're negotiating, you want Steve on your side. And very few people could have walked into Michael Eisner's office and gotten that kind of deal. Then we had a big scramble because we had been you know, all hands on deck just getting Toy Story made. I remember hoping that it just didn't tank. You know, I thought, you know, if this movie does you know, 60 or $70 million, enough to keep us in business to where we can make something better, that, you know, great. Uh, so it was a wonderful surprise that it turned out to be uh, a pretty successful movie. And then we realized, well, we've got to get another movie going right away. So development started on A Bug's Life and on other things because we realized if we're going to be a studio and have a movie coming out every year or so, that means there have to be three or four movies in various stages of production or pre-production all the time. Otherwise, you have this, these big gaps, which are very expensive. Because, you know, all the budget in these movies is labor. It's all salaries. You know, computers are cheap, especially now. But even then, comparatively, the computers were cheap. So, yeah, it became a big, a big scramble to keep the studio busy and, and act 
more like a studio. How long was Steve Jobs a part of that sort of Pixar journey? I know he got rehired as Apple and that became his main focus. Was Pixar, did he still own Pixar when that happened? Did he sell it off? He essentially owned us uh, until Disney bought it. Wow. So uh, he was, you know, at least till, well, I can't remember now if it was 2006 or 2007 when, when Disney bought Pixar. And then Steve, of course, was around. He instantly became the largest shareholder in Disney um, with that deal. So he was around until he died. You know, we, we saw him around. And what year was Toy Story released? Was it 99? 95. 95. That was November of 1995. And then... Which is why you'll find the number 95 on a lot of things in Pixar movies, including the number on Lightning McQueen. He's, num he's number 95. Talking about that... A video I watched a few years ago that fascinated me, I don't know if you've seen it, but the Pixar theory, how it talks about how everything in the Pixar is connected. The, there's a reason for the talking cars, the talking toys, and the futuristic world of Wally, -E, and how you bring it back to sort of that, that Braveheart movie with the girl, that, that archery girl. I forgot that name of that movie, but yeah. So, yeah, I'm familiar with that thing called the Pixar theory. Uh, it's a lovely little fan theory, and sorry to say it's not true. What is true is that we love Easter eggs. We love putting references to other films in. And so, you know, the Luxo ball and the Pizza Planet truck show up all over the place. Uh, we would try to sneak references to upcoming movies into films, you know, in, in Monsters, Inc., there's a fish on a plaque on, on the wall at one point, and that's Nemo. There's also a Jesse doll from Toy Story 2. I don't remember how the Pixar theory threaded everything together, but my daughter, who was a young teen at the time, realized that there was a big hole in it, and that is if you try to track Heimlich, because Heimlich shows up in Toy Story 2. So it breaks the whole theory. There's never a grand plan like that. We just like Easter eggs, and so there are lots of them, and people love finding patterns. Another sort of YouTube video I saw was like Monster Inc. How like Monster Inc. sort of had a deeper, scarier undertone towards this sort of, you know, lighthearted Marvel's um, lighthearted sort of monster movie. It sort of had a deeper, scary meaning of like sort of scaring kids and, and control and, and monsters and, and the evil snake. Are these conspiracy theories a bit too conspiratorial and it was just a lighthearted sort of kids movie? Yeah, all conspiracy theories are, <laughs> are, are just that. They're just conspiracy theories. Monsters, Inc. came in part out of a student film that John Lasseter did when he was back at CalArts uh, called Nightmare, where a little kid is trying to go to sleep and the shadows and things in his room turn into monsters until he's turning the lights on and off to make the monsters come and go, and then one gets stuck in his world, and they end up being friends and frightened together, you know. That was the germ of the idea. A lot of films come from a what if. Pete Docter had that what if, you know, what if the monster in your closet was real but had a different reason for being there than you thought. But that movie went through a lot of changes. We were well into production when we realized that there had to be a huge story change, and so the whole studio stopped. Something I tell my students is that at some point, every Pixar film sucks. At some point during production, one exception might be Toy Story 3. That was actually pretty strong most of the way through. But the point is you don't stop there. And most studios, if they had already spent, you know, I don't know, 80 or $85 million on a movie, they'd just say, well, just keep going. We can't afford to stop. But Pixar stopped, and they did a, 
a big rework on it, and the character of Sully changed drastically. He had to get remodeled, and the result was a film that ended up working pretty well. How do you know if something is good, Craig? Especially over like a 90-minute to 120-minute movie, because... You know, I often edit 60-second clips and sort of stories and like I'm re-watching that 60-second clip again and again. I'm changing the, the intro hook, the three seconds, the last three seconds, what happens in the middle. I'm cutting out micro pauses and I'm editing this 60-second clip and I might be on it for like three hours from the raw footage to the final product, sometimes even longer. And that's just for 60 seconds. So you guys are working on two hours. Usually under two hours because animation is so expensive. Toy Story was about 70 minutes, 72 minutes, something like that. Yeah, well, that's the big question, right? How do you know it's good? There are a number of ways uh, that Pixar checks on that. One is uh, internal screenings. As the movie is being made and starting when it's still in storyboard form, they'll bring a couple hundred people into the screening room and play it. And the whole brain trust, which is the joke name for all the other directors who support each other, and everybody look at it and send notes. And they they request notes from everybody. I mean, Pixar gets notes from the cooks in the kitchen. And from, you know, I mean, really, everybody is invited to, to give notes. So getting feedback like that is is really important. Uh, later in the game, there are test screenings with different audiences to see how things are playing. And the other is it takes some talent and and work to just know when things are working. You need people who can who really understand that, and that's that's a rare ability, and that's a big part of why directors get the money they get because they can they can do that. They can tell when something's working and when it isn't. On Toy Story, John told us one day, my job is not to have the good ideas. My job is to recognize the good ideas. And then also Andrew Stanton told me after Wally, he said, I've got this director thing figured out. My job is to give all the credit and take all the blame. So yeah, it's just it's just kind of hard and it doesn't always work. You know, not every Pixar film is su- as successful as others, but they've had a pretty good hit rate and the people working there in production just really don't know how to do bad work. Everyone's so motivated, everyone wants to do the best thing ever if they can. So even the unsuccessful films look great and are animated incredibly well. Are there any Pixar movies that you would count as a hidden gem where it didn't hit with the market initially, but over time it sort of gained traction and it has replayability to it. And it sort of has, the market has shown that this is a good movie, but the initial sort of results didn't show that. Um, I don't know if I can think of one that fits that description exactly. I think there are people who have gone back and appreciated A Bug's Life better than they thought. Some people got the idea that A Bug's Life was a flop when it came out, but it was $140 million. It's hard to call that a flop. It paid for the new headquarters building in Emeryville. I mean, it wasn't a runaway smash hit, but I think it holds up pretty well. Yeah, I don't know. I think think most of the good ones have actually met with pretty decent success in the marketplace. Any sort of movies in general over the last two years that sort of piqued your interest and and that made you be like, wow, that was surprisingly really good? Oh, now that I'm not at Pixar? Yeah, it's fun getting surprised like everybody else. Uh, I thought Turning Red was really fun, really, really terrific. I'm really sorry I never got to work with uh, Domi Shi, who directed that. 
because everything I've heard about her is just awesome. She seems fantastic, and I, I love her energy and her aesthetic. I think it would have been really fun to work on that movie. Ah, turning red. Interesting. Yeah. One thing I really love, like out of all the Pixar movies I've watched, I still think about Wally till this day. It's crazy how you guys sort of like predicted everything from like what's happening with AI, what's happening with social media, people are just scrolling through their phones, sort of, I don't know, a deeper sort of, a, a darker sort of talk about like depopulation and robots automation, the climate change. Yeah, I think the thing that I just think about all the time is just all the, you know, big people rolling around on, on those automatic chairs and just scrolling and content just being put into their face. And it's so true. Like the other day, last month I was in Mongolia and there was this baby girl being breastfed. And while she was breastfeeding, the two-year-old was just scrolling through TikTok or YouTube shorts while being breastfed. I was like, whoa, like this is, you know, there's kids that will scream when they're at a restaurant if the parents take away their iPad. So they have to have an iPad when they go out at the restaurant. It was like, whoa, you guys predicted that all. Yeah, Wally holds up pretty well. It's hard to remember sometimes that while we were making that movie, Steve was making the iPhone. That The iPhone came out about the same time as, as Wally did. The story of the humans, I mean, it changed a lot. There, there were a lot of big story changes in that. Originally, they were going to have evolved to a point where you didn't recognize they were humans and the big surprise at the end were going to be that those were people. And that got reined back a little bit. But what's really happening there is just infantilization. They're a bunch of big babies, right? Um, I mean, literally, we watch the captain take his first steps like a toddler, right? So it's kind of a coming-of-age story or coming-back-to-age story for, for them. Uh, it's also really a, a Buster Keaton film. Wally is modeled very much on Buster Keaton. If you haven't seen any of his old movies, you've got a treat coming. The story people watched all of Buster Keaton's movies before getting going on, on Wally. And as Andrew put it, Wally is a character who just innocently goes through the world spreading humanity. If you watch the movie, next time you watch the movie, just notice that everywhere he goes, people and robots become just a little bit more human. It made it a lot of fun. Because like, as I'm thinking back to the movie, it, it was crazy. Like humans sort of became like sort of pets, like the robots sort of just kept the humans around for fun. They didn't really need the humans. And I'm, I'm just thinking of the fight where Wally was trying to release everyone from that robot and, and, and that robot like felt really evil. Yeah, it definitely holds up and it was like a kid's movie where like a kid can watch it and sort of just have fun watching this sort of space movie with the robots and adults could really watch it and sort of see the hidden sort of messages underneath. Yeah, I always push back on the idea that it, any of our movies were kids' movies. We didn't make a single movie for kids. We made movies for us, we made them for adults, and then we had to make sure that they were okay for kids. There were a couple of things. There are a couple of things that got through that I'm kind of surprised did make it through, but uh, you know some jokes had to be dialed back to be kid safe. But nobody I knew was thinking we're making a kids movie. As Andrew said, you know the thing about kids is they have no taste. They they literally will watch anything if it's moving and funny and stuff. You develop taste later. Although there was a kid at the Wally screening, uh, my friend Jeff Pigeon and I went opening weekend to see the movie with a real audience. That, that's fun to do just to see, because you know, you've been working on something for a long time. Does it play? Do people like it? And the moment 
when Wally wakes up and he's not himself anymore, you know, when his his eyes are just straight across and he's turned into just a robot, you know, before he gets rescue zapped by Eve, the instant Wally came up into that pose, and I remember that shot was animated by Vic Navone, who's a fantastic animator, and working on that shot at my desk made me cry. You know, it was a very emotional moment. So, you know, I'm I'm paying attention when this happens. And the instant that happened, we hear a little kid way behind us in the theater shout, that's not the real Wally. And Jeff and I looked at each other and said, well, the movie works, right? <laughs> so, you know, kids get it. When I say we never made a kid's film, I want to make sure you understand that I certainly don't. And I don't think anybody thinks kids are dumb. Kids are really, really smart. They're learning machines. Their full-time job is figuring out how the world works, and they're really, really good at it. They do it very quickly. But as far as taste goes, they just they just don't have it yet. Given that you guys sort of make these movies with sort of live adult sort of themes, why do you guys, or what do you think is the reason behind sort of the kid-like animation, the cartoon feeling. Like, if you're sort of going to make a serious movie, why not present it through a serious medium? Why sort of not mask it, but sort of try challenge yourself and do this serious thing and challenge yourself and make it child-friendly and, and make it seem like a kid's ta- cartoon? I mean, I think we did. W- one thing that drives me a little crazy uh, in America is the idea, and this is mostly Disney's fault, that animation means it's a kid's movie. And that's something I like, you know, for example, you go to Japan, there are a lot of animated films you will not be showing to kids. I'm actually very happy about a new series on Netflix uh, that's Japan, sort of Japanese, but made for America called Blue Eye Ninja, which is uh, gorgeous animation and definitely not for kids. You know, as John said, for every laugh, there should be a tear. You're trying to convey emotions. I, I tell my students that's the one job cinema has is to convey emotions and the technical term for a movie that doesn't do that is boring that's the one thing you can't be is boring so i think a lot of pixar films delve into some very deep themes like in wally's case what does it really mean to be human toy story 3 certainly goes nice and deep there are questions in a lot of the movies about you know who are you and what really matters to you and i think those are all universal story ideas we also like to make the movies funny and comedy is going to push you in a direction of uh, certain kind of art decisions that you make just to make things funny and and appealing those are appeal is a basic tenet of animation as identified by the nine old men of Disney. You know, that's one of the things you need to have. Appeal doesn't have to mean cute and it doesn't have to mean funny, but it means interesting, Some a character you want to watch. The counterexample I use is Darth Vader. He's not cute, but he's a very appealing character, right? When Darth Vader comes on screen, you want to know what, what, what Darth Vader, eh. When Darth Vader comes on the screen, you want to know what Darth Vader is doing, right? Does that make sense? It does. When you talked about like a lot of things or like, you know, who you are, what you want to do, I instantly thought of the movie Soul, um, that, that Pixar movie. It's a great one. Yeah, I, I remember watching it and at the end I was like, wow, that was a beautiful story about just sort of appreciating life and he was sort of seeing that leaf fall down from the tree as the light rays hit it and he was like, this is what life is about. At the same time, I had like younger sisters watch it 
and it was like a bit boring for them because half of the movie was spent in like the soul world and there were these little soul balls just walking around through the soul world and it felt a bit sort of not that entertaining but that was sort of what I thought of when you sort of shared that yeah that's a good example Pete Doctor is oh, he's one of my favorite people on the planet. He's a, he's a wonderful human being and very talented, and he's got a great sensibility. So, you know, you look at his movies, Monsters, Inc., and Up, and Soul. He's very connected to the human experience. And, then, like, now I'm thinking of Up, and then I'm thinking of the old man and the, the balloons from the house, and it's just a solid image. And now I'm thinking of the music and the score. The music, do you guys do that in-house, or did you guys sort of find well-known sort of movie scores. Yeah, uh, the latter. The scores are written by usually established composers. Michael Giacchino got into Pixar's orbit thanks to The Incredibles. He had been doing video games and things up until then. And Brad Bird originally wanted John Barry to do the score for The Incredibles, you know, the guy who did all the classic James Bond scores. He wanted that big brass feel that Barry could do. But Barry was kind of old and cantankerous, and he didn't want to repeat what he'd done before, so that didn't work out. Somehow Brad got connected to, to Michael, who said, yeah, I can do that style. And he did. He crushed it. And so that's how he got in, and he ended up doing Up and a number of things like that. Randy Newman was one of John's favorite composers, and that's how he got into doing the Toy Story scores. Andrew was always a big fan of Thomas Newman, which is why he got him to do Nemo. So yeah, the, those have been contracted out. They're generally brought in fairly early, so they can see what's going on and play with themes and stuff like that. Pixar's smart enough to know that it takes time to write a good score as well. Some movies just say, you know, here's your movie, write a score. You got. I don't know if you know, the score to Lawrence of Arabia was written in six weeks which just blows my mind. When you talked, I was the, the next thing I wanted to talk about was when you brought up The Incredibles, like you guys somehow were able to create this, this lore around it, how like there was a black and white olden day clips of the, the prime sort of superhero age and like, the, you know, the, the clips of all the different superheroes that died because they had capes and, and Edna was talking about how she made costumes. So you guys built this lore in such a short amount of time to this movie. And even though the present day is they're these retired superheroes and their parents, and then you brought up Nemo and I was like, whoa, I totally forgot Nemo. But like the moment you brought Nemo, I could, there's a feeling like just thinking of the movie, there's this feeling attached to it. Like how did you guys create this feeling? A lot of work. I mean, it really, really boils down to that. And directors who really know what they're doing. I remember Andrew Stanton telling me one day, he said, my goal on Nemo is I'm going to write a script and get it so solid that we don't have to make any big changes during production. And I said, Andrew, I love that idea. And of course, that's not what happened. It, there was a big change in the middle of production. But that's because Andrew was a good enough storyteller to know, nah, this isn't working this way. Uh, and he, he rejiggered the story and pitched it to us. And we all went, oh, yeah, this is great. And... Brad Bird is an amazingly good storyteller. He and his story crew just did a lot of really great hard work on The Incredibles, and that's how they got all that stuff to work so well. It's a matter of revising and revising and revising. You know, things don't change. If you want a really good look at how Pixar really makes movies and the secret sauce to it, which is really editorial, uh, check out the book called Making the Cut at Pixar by Bill Kinder. It goes into some wonderful depth on exactly how all this stuff works and how the revisions work. Wonderful book. 
And editing, I learned from all my years there, is where movies get made. Everything else is just providing the raw materials. Movies get made in editing. That is the one person you have to have. You can make a movie without actors. You can make a movie without just about anybody. But you have to have an editor. That's so true. Yeah. Craig, have you watched any sort of animes or anime movies from Japan? Like I think of like the old Akira movie. I think of Studio Ghibli. And now I think of Studio Ghibli. I feel like they're like the sort of Asian version of Pixar with what they're doing. And they have a super high hit rate and their films have a feeling towards it. What's your experience been with sort of overseas, sort of Asian, Japanese animation, anime? Yeah. Well, Miyazaki is a legend and he's a legend because he's a good storyteller. I don't know how the guy does it. He storyboards all alone, his own movies. He boards those entire things and his boards are amazing. Like, I don't know how you do that. That's, that's nuts. Yeah, I've loved a lot of his movies. I love Tonare no Totoro, uh, Spirited Away. Um, those are probably my two favorites. Laputa, Castle in the Sky. Uh, I remember John showing us the opening and saying, this is the best opening of any movie ever, and ran that opening. And yeah, by the, by the time the, the title of the movie comes up, you're going, wait, what? What just happened? What's going on? You know, it's wonderful. Other more recent animes I've seen that I really liked, I was blown away by Wolf Children. I finally saw that. Just really, there are a couple of really good gut punches in there. And the same director did one called Your Name. I think I have that right. Um, which is also just, just a wonderful piece of work. I own a copy of Grave of the Fireflies, and I haven't gotten brave enough to watch it yet. I'm still... <laughs> I'm still waiting. I was kind of hoping a friend might watch it with me, but they're all saying, no, I've already seen it and I can't do it again. So I'm waiting on that one. Yeah, you can hardly go wrong with, with Miyazaki, though. I mean, Kiki's Delivery Service and Princess Mononoke, Howl's Moving Castle. Just make sure you, as long as you can read, make sure you watch them in Japanese with subtitles. Even though I will say that uh, the people at Disney who do the dubs uh, at Buena Vista, they are the best at that in the world. And the English dub of Totoro is actually shockingly good. It sounds like the original Japanese actors just learned English. It's wild. But uh, you're still better off in general with, uh, with the original Japanese and subtitles if you can do it. Do you think storytelling and stories and movies is the same worldwide? Or do you think like the Americans, Pixar, Disney movies have a different culture or angle or taste compared to the Japanese sort of movies? Or do you think they're all movies in the same? That's an interesting question. I would say that fundamentally storytelling is the same everywhere, but cultures have different flavors. It's like food. Mm. Right. Food is food. You know, nutritionally, food all breaks down into the seven same things, no matter where you are eating it. But if you go to a different country, you're going to get a different mix of flavors, a little different, a little different take on how it's how it's told. And, you know, American Hollywood films have certain things that they do really well. I mean, Hollywood is clearly the best at a certain kind of thing, but they're not as good at some other things as, you know, Japanese films are going to be or European films are going to be. You know, it's all different, different flavors. I mean, story is fundamental to being a human. As I like to say as a scientific skeptic, we are a story that our brain tells itself. So you are living a story all the time and there's no way out of it unless you're unconscious. You know, even when you're asleep, you're getting stories. <laughs> and there's a basic need for story. We respond to stories. Uh, I think it's part of us being tribal simians the way we are, that we tell each other stories. But 
people will tell stories in different ways. But Joseph Campbell, you know, identified a basic commonality to stories from a number of cultures, right? That you, you get down to the fundamentals and it's all really the same. You talked about sort of we living in this story that, you know, we can't sort of stop or control. As a writer, being in that space, Craig, do you sort of do anything differently with your life? Like, given that you know you're sort of living your story live, I like, wow, like, should I take this interesting opportunity that seems a bit risky because I want a more interesting story for my life? Well, sometimes you do that, right? What would, what would make for a better story? I like something I learned from Teller. I don't know if you're familiar with Penn and Teller. They're uh, magicians. Met them years ago. I'm still in touch with Penn. Haven't been in touch with Teller. But he taught me a principle called NPD, no permanent damage. And he said, uh, when I'm deciding whether or not to try something new, I ask, can it do permanent damage? If it can, then I'm going to be really careful about it. If it can't, then why not try it, right? Why not? Uh, I use that when raising my daughter. You know, hair color is and hairstyle. There's nothing permanent about any of that. So wear your hair however you want. Color it however you want. And now they're a hairdresser, as you can see. <laughs> yeah, as a storyteller, I mean, I think part of why we tell stories is to gain a modicum of control, to feel like we have some control, but also to prepare ourselves for things that, that we might face. You know, I think stories probably go back to the savannah when the hunting party would come back and tell the story of chasing down and killing a big scary animal so that everybody could eat. And if imagine being a kid listening to that, you're going to hear, oh, that sounds really scary. But it probably had them better prepared for when it was their turn to go on the hunt, right? So stories are a safe place to face your fears. You know, horror films are great because you can sit there and watch a horror film and get scared to death, but you know you're safe. You're in, you're in a theater or in your house. Nothing's actually going to get you. So you know you're going to come through it all right. And I think that's psychologically healthy that you can kind of give yourself this, this dry run. I don't know if being a writer has changed the way I actually live my life. That's an interesting question. I mean, I've been doing a mindfulness practice for the last few years that's, that's made quite a difference. And, and, you know, realizing that, you know, by virtue of arising, everything that happens is going to go away at some point. It does help to, to know that everything's temporary. Yeah, it's a really interesting question, though. Have I used writer stuff to influence how I live my life? I'm not sure how to answer that, so I won't make up an answer. I'll just say, I don't know, but I'll think about it. <laughs> I love that, Craig. One thing I popped into my head is I recently watched James Cameron's Avatar, the, the second movie, The Way of Water. And man, like I, I rewatched that the second time again, like the week after, like something about his movies creates this sort of this feeling of, of yearning for family and sort of that community. But then he's also beautifully, subtly put in sort of the themes of environment, caring for our earth sort of colonization. And he's done it in a very subtle way. And I guess that also breeds into my next topic of sort of this whole woke culture of movies sort of trying to sort of talk about sort of gender equality or racism or segregation or, or politics. And they do it in a non-subtle way. I really like a quote attributed to Samuel Goldwyn in the old Hollywood days. He said, if you want to send a message, call Western Union. Right. I think when a movie gets preachy, that it fails. And some movies do get preachy way more than they should. Having said that, I think stories are a good way to get people to learn things about being human 
as well. So I love movies that uh, bring in more diverse viewpoints and have better representation than older movies. I tell my students, I show clips from old movies, and some of them have tropes and things in them that we find kind of cringy now. And I say, yeah, celebrate that. This is what moral progress feels like. And someday your grandchildren are going to look at stuff you made and say, really, Grandma? What were you thinking? That's fine. That, I think that's how the world progresses. And you can look at the time capsules of movies and see that there's been a lot of progress. You can also see movies that subtly, perhaps subversively, moved the ball forward uh, without being preachy about it, without being obvious. I just showed a strange little short film to my class that I do for the last day of class called Blaze Glory. Uh, it's a Pixelmation film that was done in 1969. And it's got some American Western tropes in it that we wouldn't do now, uh, although it was making fun of the tropes back then. But it also has some of the most way ahead of its time gay coding I've ever seen in the film, right? It's almost so in your face that you don't recognize it. I certainly didn't as a kid. And then, you know, my queer daughter pointed out, hey, dad, that guy's gay as ever. You know, like, oh, yeah, you're right. I hadn't noticed that. That just means some people watched that film and they laughed because it's a funny film. And probably without realizing it, gay people got a little bit more human for them. That's the direction I like to take things. I love hearing different voices, uh, but I really don't like going to the movies and being preached to. As soon as that happens, as soon as you can tell you're being preached to, you're not in the story anymore, right? Story is king. You've got to keep people involved in the story. And while you're doing that, you can sneak a lot of stuff into the payload, but you don't want to let it take over. That's my opinion anyway. Those are my thoughts. Craig, something I just thought of is I remember going to a cinema one day watching a movie. I think it was either before and after the ads or it was somehow randomly in the middle of the movie. Sort of a Pixar short film just popped up. And all of a sudden we spent the next 15 minutes watching this story about these volcanoes. I think it was like two volcanoes or I can't remember. Oh, uh, yeah, uh, lava, I think it's called. Yeah, and then... I got to sing on that a little bit. Yeah, lovely little little films, probably about six minutes long. James Ford directed that, as I recall. At Pixar, they know that you can't make money on shorts, but we love shorts so much, and we kind of came from that world, uh, that we try to have a short to go out with every feature film. And it turns out to be a good place for training new directors, because you can have a relatively bite-sized production and get experience at doing the whole process. God, I think that answers the question I was going to ask. I was going to ask, you know, what's the purpose of these shorts? I sometimes see them for free on YouTube, and I think you sort of answered that question. Yeah, they're a training ground. They're, sometimes they're technology demos. Uh, you know, we have a new thing we want to try out. One of the shorts I got to work on was called Lifted that Gary Rydstrom directed. I don't know if you've seen that one. Uh, it's about an alien trying to do an abduction, but he's a student at it, and he's there with his instructor trying to abduct a guy from his farmhouse. And part of what they did is they made the aliens out of this semi-transparent green gloppy stuff, which is what the humans in Wally were going to be. They were going to be made out of that. That eventually didn't happen, but you know, the short was a good place to try it out. See, can we can we make it work? Can we get it through a production pipeline? Craig, when you worked on like Monster Inc., Wally, all these movies, what was your specific role? Were you sort of like a jack of all trades? Did you work on a bit of everything? What was your sort of day to day like? On the really early shorts, I was a generalist, kind of a jack of all trades, you know, going back to 
you know, tin toy and things like that. On the features, I started getting specialized right away. When we started Toy Story, I was the entire layout department. That's how stupid we were. We thought one guy could do it. We ended up needing like 20. Then it became obvious during A Bug's Life that we needed someone kind of senior to babysit the camera after layout. Once it goes into animation, you know, keep maintaining the camera for the animators and all the way through the end of production. We called that camera polish. And that's what I did almost exclusively for the rest of the time, that, you know, the next 18 or so years that I was at Pixar. So I was using the same software the animators use, but I was animating the camera and not a character. Although on Wally, -E, I treated it like two characters. I treated it like a camera operator and a focus puller. And some days they were very well rehearsed and sometimes they got surprised. And Andrew had said, look, I'm making a love story between two robots and I'm worried that we won't have a feeling of intimacy. So a big part of the camera operation that I did is I, I did the final operation and focus pulling on every single shot in the film. And subliminally, we were putting humans in the room with the robots so you could feel that there were people behind the camera, you know, tracking what was going on and interested in what was happening and trying to keep the right things in focus so that you wouldn't be conscious of it, but that there would be, you know, some humanity there, at least as an observer all the time. Great. Given all these videos, all these movies and features were done digitally, what do you mean by sort of making a camera? Like, are you making a digital camera that captures a digital sort of view? And, and how are you sort of moving? Because isn't it all like on a computer? It all is on the computer, but the paradigm we use in the 3D is just like live action. You can, do you know what motion control is? You heard, heard of that? Motion control, uh, it's usually done on cameras. It's a way of having computers record all the movements that a, a camera makes so they can be repeated accurately over and over again. That's how you do special effects work and things like that. Well, in Pixar's world, everything is motion control. You can think of the characters as motion control puppets, right? You can edit their motion. That's what the animators do. And the camera is the same thing. It's, it's the control of how the computer is going to render the, the final frame. So I'm li literally using this, the animation software that the animators use for the characters, except I'm controlling the motion of the camera and, and its other parameters like focus. Does that make wow. sense? Wow. So that means like I recently watched, what was a Pixar movie? Elements, I think. Yeah, um, Elemental. And how, Elemental. And there was like an opening shot where it feels like a drone is coming into the, well, in the beginning where they move into that city and a drone comes in and it sort of shows the shop that the father is building in this sort of ghetto. Right. So like, is there a literal, are you controlling this camera drone and sort of, and is this world built around and wow. Yep. Somebody has to do that. Everything you see in a Pixar film has to be designed, it has to be built, it has to be placed, and it has to be animated if it moves. That's why it's so much work. You know, in a live action film, if you take the camera out of the box, put it together and take the lens cap off, there's something there. It might not be what you want, there's something. In Pixar's world, there's nothing. It's a black void. So everything you see has to be made somehow. Now, if it's something way off in the distance, it could be a painting, but most of what you see is 3D modeled one way or another. And yeah, all those camera moves, somebody has to do them. They have to, you know, go in by hand and figure out what the camera's going to be looking at and when. Because like, I was just thinking of like, you know, 2D sort of anime and how it's all storyboarded out. And like when, when there's this sort of storyboard of this frame and this angle, they're not having, you can't see the back of the person. That's not designed. The, the fishes in the background aren't moving. But you guys have all that. It's like a going from 2D to 3D and it's exponentially complicated. Yeah, that's why it takes a lot of people to make one of those movies. That is 
crazy. So like as the camera operator, Craig, are you actually hitting record and, and, and filming what this digital camera is? Or do you save everything and editing will sort of pick the angle and, and what lighting and, and where the camera is? Can that be done during editing or is it? It's sort of like it's sort of like editing. It's the animation system is called keyframe. Most of what we do is keyframe, if you're familiar with that idea, where I can say that, you know, the camera is here at frame one and it's going to be here at frame 10 oh, and the computer yeah. figures out no, what happens on frames two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Um, and you can edit the shape of the curves that helps the computer interpolate that. That's the same way the characters are animated. You know, the animator will say the hand is bent this way at frame one and this way at frame 10, and the computer does the in-betweens, and they can edit the curves for, you know, slow ins and slow outs, and the same with the camera. Huh. So it's a non-real-time thing. The only exception to that was on a rare exception. Actually, I did it twice. Uh, on Toy Story 3, I did a mocap camera for mom's camcorder recordings where she's supposed to be a really bad camera operator. That was me doing that by hand in a mocap uh, situation, although I had to edit those curves because she was supposed to be a bad camera operator and also a really amazingly good camera operator. Because, you know, when Andy comes by, you know, with a toy on a horse that, that the lens tracks perfectly, that's hard to do. <laughs> so, you know, I went in and hand edited that curve. And then I did more mocap stuff on uh, a short film called the, the Blue Umbrella. I don't know if you've seen that one. It's a very photoreal story, a love story between two umbrellas. Features a lot of pareidolia in a in a city landscape, and we did kind of a mocap on that as well, but still hand edited. But for the most part, like on Wally, -E, it was all just going in by hand and manipulating the curves to get the camera to do what I want. Got it. So unlike a say real life sort of movie where they get five drone shots and that's all they have to work with during editing. You could technically just keyframe one sort of drone shot and during editing, the director can manipulate it as he likes and get it perfected um, and sort of change it to his liking. You're very close. Uh, what happens if you, if you read that book by Bill Kinder, you'll see how it works. In editorial, you know, I mean, the, the layout department will send rough versions of shots into editorial and send them lots of coverage because it's fairly cheap at that point. There's no animation yet. And editorial can pick what they want, and then the editor can say, you know, my life would be a lot easier if I had a shot like this one, but a little tighter, or a shot like this one, but, you know, over here some more. And we can just give that to them. And once it was in animation, you know, editorial could say, oh, I, I need the camera pan to start a little sooner and to do this a little differently. And even after the animation's done, we can go back in and change the camera. That's the advantage of having this motion control world. That's the work I did for a long time. Craig, another question I wrote down is, what's your thoughts on sequels and sort of how to go about it? Like are sequels sort of you guys being super passionate about a story and wanting to progress the story and tell it in a different way? Is it a marketing ploy? Because if everyone knows Toy Story 1, Toy Story 2 is going to be a much easier hit because everyone or the audience will move over and like it's just like a no-brainer to make something where you don't have to generate a brand new audience. So it's like a business play. Uh, sequels at Pixar happen because a director has an idea for a story they want to tell. Hmm. Every Toy Story film I worked on was the last Toy Story film, as far as we knew when we were making it. There were no plans for a Toy Story 2 when we made the first one. 
There were no plans for a Toy Story 3 when we made the second one, and there were no plans for a Toy Story 4 while we were making the third one. Those were just ideas, you know, stories people wanted to tell. You know, was there pressure from Disney to do a Cars 2? Probably, but it, that happened really because John loves that world. John wanted to make that movie, and that's why it happened. Pixar doesn't really do sequels as a cash grab. They do it because, oh, we've got something we want to say. I'm really curious to see what happens with Toy Story 5 because they got Andrew Stanton back in to direct it. I thought it was pretty gutsy to take Toy Story 4 and turn it into a breakup film. You know, we spent three movies cementing this relationship, this central relationship, and then blew it up in Toy Story 4. So I don't know what they're going to do in 5. It'll be fun to watch. How much of the story is on the director or producer versus on the writer? Uh, when a writer comes in, they're usually working for the director. Some of the directors are good writers and like writing and do it themselves. Andrew Stanton and Brad Bird are good examples. They can write. They're very good writers. Lee Unkrich is an amazing filmmaker. Uh, his background is editing. He's, he's a fantastic editor. And he's a really great director, obviously, you know, Toy Story 3 and Coco. But he knows that he's not a writer. So he hires a writer to help do that. And besides the writer, there's a whole story department of people doing storyboards coming up with ideas. So there's really a story team that gets put together. But the one ultimately guiding everything is always the director. Talking about directors, like people like George Lucas or Mizuzaki, they seem like phenoms where they're, they're directors, but then they have their own studio, and then mm -hmm. they sort of, they, they invest in like technology, like they're doing everything. Most people are usually directors and that's all they do and that already is a great feat, but they're sort of, that's just one of the many things they're doing. They're investing in new technologies, like who is George Lucas and like, wow. George is an interesting case. He was seeing way ahead. I mean, I remember 1979 and the thought of doing digital audio, digital compositing, and digital editing was really, honest to gosh, science fiction at the time. And the thought that he was willing to take some of his money and invest in making that happen, it's really impressive. People like that don't come along every day. Miyazaki is certainly someone who doesn't come along every day. But you're right, someone who can be a really good director that's enough. <laughs> That's a lot. That is not easy to do well. It's A lot of people can do it very badly, but to be working at the level of someone like Denis Villeneuve or Francis Coppola, that's just rare. Like, have you, what has your, have you interacted or, or sort of been with George Lucas? Like, he invented Star Wars from nothing. Is that, is that right? Pretty much. Um, part of the secret of George's success in the early days was the, the woman he was married to for a while, Marsha Lucas, who was a fantastic editor and was able to guide him a lot. Her recut of Star Wars really saved that movie. She's a, a wonderful character. And you can see the quality of George's work slipping, starting right at Return of the Jedi, which is where the divorce happened. George didn't really like directing. He loves editing and post more than directing, which is why he started hiring, you know, he directed the, the first Star Wars film and then he just hired directors to do the rest because that's not fun. <laughs> he liked the other stuff better. And who can blame him? It's a lot of pressure, a lot of work. What's your thoughts on like Marvel, Disney and this sort of corporatization of like content? It feels like there's just movies being pumped out. It feels like the same template. It feels like McDonald's. More power to them. 
I'll say, and I'm happy for everybody who enjoys those. Myself, I've kind of hit Marvel fatigue, and I uh, I don't like the idea that I have to do homework to understand a film, you know, because I'm not one of the core comic book people who know all the characters and know what's going on. I've thoroughly enjoyed a number of Marvel films and Marvel properties, but they may be hitting market saturation on superhero stuff. This has happened before. When I was a kid, everything was Westerns, right? There were so many Westerns. You have no idea how many Westerns, right? And then in the 70s, for a while, people went, yeah, I think we're done with Westerns. We're going to do something else, right? So that may be happening to superhero movies. We may be at that point where the market's going... Okay, seen that. Let's. What's next? And uh, it'll be interesting to see what's next. Yeah, who knows? The people running Marvel seem to be really smart people, and they really care about their job. And the people, the crews making the movies, seem to be really good at their jobs. I'm glad that it's created a lot of work for people, but relatively few of them are my cup of tea. I'll just say that. How did was Pixar impacted in any way when Disney purchased them in 06 and 07? And were you still working at Pixar through the acquisition? Yeah, I was there. I remember being there the day that they announced it. And that was a very, very emotional time. To Bob Iger's credit, he was the one guy in all the years we had been working with Disney. He was the only guy who asked Ed, huh, how do you guys do it? And Ed said, come up and I'll show you. And he toured him around. And then he said, okay. I'm buying this company, right? That was a very emotional moment. And to Disney's credit, things changed very little. One of the things I did because of the old days is uh, my voice was on the phone system. If you called Pixar, I think if you call the main number even now, you can hear me saying, thank you for calling Pixar Animation Studios. You know? And when we got bought, I went into the system and I changed the message a little. I said, Oh, oh, hi, everybody. <clears throat> Thank you for calling Pixar Animation Studio. And I heard that people were calling it from Disney and cracking up. They, they thought it was great. But then I got a call from Ed Catmull's office who said, we'd like you to put it back because we want Pixar to stay Pixar. And I thought, that is great. I'm very happy to put it back. Yeah, I, I could tell you Ed Catmull stories for hours. He's one of my heroes. Uh, and I told his assistant when, when she was giving me that that request that, you know, it obviously was a very emotional day and kind of difficult news to take. But I said, you know, speaking for myself, if Ed Catmull got up in front of the company and said, tomorrow we're marching into hell, I would have said, okay, let me go home and get my sunscreen. He's managed to build up an incredible amount of loyalty. Do you have time for one Ed Catmull story? Yes, please. And, and who is Ed Catmull? Ed Catmull uh, was really the, the founder of the computer division that eventually became Pixar and Editroid and all those other things. Check out his book, Creativity, Inc. That'll tell you all about his, his story. During the time when we were trying to get ourselves funded so we could spin off away from Lucasfilm and we were trying all kinds of things and they were failing and we all thought we were going to be out of a job any day now, Lucasfilm hired a guy named Doug Norby as president. And he was one of those guys that if you were a Silicon Valley company with too many people in it, you hired him and he would make sure there weren't that many people anymore. That was, that was his thing, right? And he wanted a lot of layoffs from the computer division. And Ed and Alvy kept telling him, no, we're not laying anybody off. And he kept insisting and insisting. And finally, he said, you will be in my office tomorrow morning with a list of names. And they showed up in his office and they put the list down on his desk. It had two names on it, Ed Catmull and Alvy Ray Smith. Now, the only reason we got word of how that happened is that Ed Catmull's wife liked to blab a little bit. She told us about it. Can you imagine how we all felt at having our bosses go to bat for us like that? 
we pooled our own money and sent them on a, a date in San Francisco, you know, Ed and Alvy and their wives. You know, we, we bought them a night on the town as a thank you. Even those of us who didn't make much money, I, I cheerfully contributed to that fund. That's why I say Ed is the kind of guy that if he says, we're marching into hell, say, okay, fine, get, let me get my sunscreen. Were Ed and Al, did they have ownership in the company? Did the founding members have stock in Pixar or, or was it all <laughs> owned by Steve and then passed on to Disney and you guys didn't sort of get much founding sort of, I guess... There was a brief moment when we first spun off when when we all were allowed to buy some stock. You know, I was allowed to buy like $450 worth of, of Pixar stock. <laughs> I barely had $450 to scrape together to do it. And years later, they said, well, that's not going to work out. Steve's just going to buy us out. So I got my $450 back. So I, I broke even on the first issue of Pixar stock. When the company went public, then uh, people started getting options. Um, there were stock options for people. So that, that was a little different. Uh, Ed and Alvy, when they were at the computer division, were not owners of anything. That was a private company all owned by George Lucas. That was not, not a public company. You guys built such amazing culture where Pixar felt as if you guys were, you guys owned it. You guys worked as if it was your own baby, despite that, which is amazing culture. Like you guys... For, and, and there wasn't even like, what was Ed and sort of Alf, like what were they fighting for? Because they were just sort of, just, I guess, employees of the company, but they sort of fought for it as if it was their own baby, which is amazing. Oh, yeah. yeah. Ed and Alvy uh, understood that the value of the company was the people. And, you know, we were treated well. Ed, I give all the credit to Ed for the culture at Pixar, a culture where art and technology are words that unite people rather than divide them, company that values its people over everything else. Ed had a very casual academic way of, of managing. He called it management by wandering around. Every now and then he'd just show up in your office and chat. We were having fun. <laughs> I had a lot of freedom that nobody checked on what time I showed up to work. I would usually get to work at 10 or 11 in the morning, but we'd always, you know, I'd be there till eight or nine or 10 or midnight. As long as you got your work done and, you know, we're doing the things you were supposed to do, nobody cared. It was not a heavily regimented place, you know, not very hierarchical. And everybody just pitched in and, you know, everyone is doing exciting work. So why wouldn't you have fun and make it like it was yours? Steve Jobs being a really productized person and really into the details like the inside of the iPhone had to be perfect even though people didn't look or see it and just him knowing that inside was a, a piece of art itself like that's how detailed he was did he have any influence or impact on the Pixar products movies yeah very little he like I said he was smart enough to recognize what he didn't know and he didn't know about making movies. So he left that to the people who knew how to make movies. Uh, he helped take care of the business stuff. He got us a beautiful building, the, the building that's now called the Steve Jobs Building in Emeryville. It's the only building Steve got to design himself or you know, be in charge of. He wasn't the architect, but he was, that was his baby. And it's the one building he really got to do. And boy, was he into the details on that. Uh, there were some very expensive tiles. I mean, his tiles were like, I don't know, hundreds of dollars each, these white tiles. They were on the board, uh, on the wall behind the kitchen, and they weren't lining up right. So he made them, chisel them down and buy new tiles and do it again because it wasn't right. Uh, he had people with little paintbrushes 
painting in the details on the ironwork of the vents under the steps. You know, it was quite the project. And it's a, it's a really impressive building. And he understood our culture well enough that he designed a building that made people come together because he realized that a lot of stuff happened at Pixar because you'd bump into your friend in the hallway and say, oh, yeah, I was thinking about your problem and blah, blah, blah. You know, just those, those chance little sparks that would happen when people run into each other. So there's a big central atrium, and that's where you go to get your mail and to get your food and where the restrooms are. And the restrooms, even upstairs, are in kind of a central location. So any reason you have to leave your office takes you to a place where you're likely to bump into other people. He said, it's really hard to explain that to the city council, but um, he understood that that's how the company worked. I guess you could say he understood us the way he understood a computer. You know, he, he knew what it took to make it tick, uh, even if he couldn't do the work himself. I remember there was like an interview where he asked Steve what his favorite or most, the product that he was most proud of. And he didn't, you know, some would think he would say the iPhone or the iPod, but he said the most thing he was proud of was the teams he built. He was amazing at building teams. Did he do any key hires within Pixar? Or did when he bought Pixar, the team was already perfect and he could see that and he didn't have to make any changes to the team? I don't recall him being hands-on at all in the, in the management of Pixar, very little. And he knew that he had a good team with uh, Ed Catmull and John Lasseter and the people there. So I think he recognized that, that we had that. I say we as if I were one of those people. I mean, he famously referred to Ed and Alvy as babes in the woods, but he was talking about their managerial experience. And it's true. You know, when they decided to spin off a company, they went out and bought books on how to run a company. You know, oh, how do you do this? I don't know. They educated themselves. So Steve, I think, provided a lot of mentorship and connected them with lots of mentors. I remember him telling us when uh, we went public that the board of directors was going to have lots of gray hairs on it, you know, lots of experienced people to, to help out. So he, I know he was instrumental in putting together the first board of directors and things like that. So that would be a team he helped build. It's about the extent of my knowledge on that. How about Bob Iger? Did you have any sort of interaction with Bob Iger as he purchased Pixar? Or was he quite independent and he didn't really see Pixar much after the purchase? D did I have any interaction with Bob Iger? No, I, I, I really didn't. I think I got to say hi to him once on a tour. I had many more interactions with Steve. We didn't see Bob around a lot. He did arrange for a bunch of us to go down and tour Disney after the purchase. You know, it was kind of a, an outreach thing. He was a busy boy. Bob, like back in like 07 and in the 2010, 2015, like Disney was just crushing it. And now I think he maybe took a pause and now he's back as a CEO. What do you think is happening with Disney? Uh, that's above my pay grade. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I'm not a business analyst. Not even, I don't even play one on TV. So I'm not sure what's happening at, at Disney. I know Bob's gotten some, some bad press for some things that have been happening recently. But I will say the impression I got from him back in the day when he bought us was that he was a very smart guy. And that's about all I could tell you about that. I hope Disney does well and that everybody working there does well. But I don't know the, the ins and outs of what's going on now. Given that you had a lot more interactions with Steve Jobs, any sort of cool sort of bubbly sort of memories or interactions or experiences that come at the top of your mind that you had with Steve personally? Bubbly is the last word I would have used for some of them. There was a day that was a real emotional roller coaster. 
well, I already talked about it. It was the day that I found out when I got to work that that morning I was laid off. And then just before I got to work, I was rehired. A bunch of people got laid off that day. I felt awful because some of them, you know, I was a single guy, you know, young guy, and I'm, I'm the bottom of the totem pole in any case. And there were guys with, you know, wives and families who were out of work. And I was just in shock. And a bunch of us were in the B building that evening talking about it. And Steve wandered in and just started chatting like nothing had happened. And he said, uh, you guys want to go to dinner? I'll take you to dinner. And we're like, okay, sure. Uh, there was a vegetarian place in San Rafael that he liked. It never occurred to Steve that he could order vegetarian at a regular restaurant. If you went to dinner with Steve, it was a vegetarian restaurant. Everyone was going to eat vegetarian. So the next thing I know, I'm riding in Steve Jobs' Porsche, and we're talking cars like a couple of guys going to dinner, like nothing had happened. The biggest emotional roller coaster day, you know, just like my friends are out of work. This morning I was out of a job, and now I'm riding with Steve Jobs, and we're talking cars. Okay, I guess that's how today's going. Do you think he sort of knew that you guys are all friends of the people he's laid off, and he wanted to sort of sort of just like, hey, like, let's go out for dinner, let's catch, like, let's get to know each other? Or was he actually nonchalant to it all? And he was like, these are just strangers, and I want to get to know them. I think, now, I'm, I'm not a doctor, nor do I play one on TV. I think it's fairly clear that Steve was on the spectrum. And my take on him, this is my personal take, nobody else's, is that he just didn't understand how he affected other people. I don't think he was aware entirely aware of everybody else's emotions. So I think that's why he was able to just turn on a dime that way and say, well, bunch of guys, let's go to dinner. You know, I'm sure he was trying to be nice. And he was nice. He was very nice that night. But there were some things he just didn't get. Penn Gillette told me the story of meeting Steve. I don't know if you remember the Next Computer. It was the company he had that he got Apple to buy. You know, the, the current Macintosh operating system is really the Next operating system, right? That's, that's where Apple got that. And the beta of that machine had just come out, and every computer geek in the country wanted one so badly because it was gorgeous and it was the new hot thing. And so Penn said he folded and palmed a $20 bill in his hand, and he shook hands with Steve. He said, glad to meet you, Steve. I'm Penn. And boy, it sure would be great if one of those next boxes showed up on my desk. You know what I mean? And he said he let, he let go, and the $20 bill fluttered to the floor, and Steve just stared at it like he didn't understand. He didn't get the joke, right? <laughs> He didn't have much of a sense of humor. He sent one joke email to Pixar in all the years we were there. It was a, a photo meme about a Starbucks opening on the moon. It was just the weirdest little thing. I'm like, okay, that's what we're doing. Steve changed a lot. He and I were close to the same age. He was exactly nine months older than, than I am. He was kind of a frightening terror in his younger days, and we were terrified of being bought by him, and we didn't know how that was going to go. But by the end, I think he was a very different man and a much more thoughtful one. I think when he knew the end was near, it changed a lot of things for him. He was The last time I saw him, he looked so skinny. I mean, he was not in good shape. But I said, well, hi, Steve. It's nice to see you. And he just said, it's nice to be seen, you know. <laughs> If you read the Steve Jobs biography by Walter Isaacson, that's a pretty good biography. But then also read Ed Catmull's book, Creativity, Inc., because at the end there, you will get another view of Steve that you won't get elsewhere. And I think you'll end up with a more balanced view. 
Yeah, I'm going to definitely check out that book because I was going to ask, yeah, like what were your experiences like with the older sort of bold, skinny, sort of turtleneck and jeans version of Steve Jobs? Because there's that version of him and there's the one with long hair. He's sort of, you know, he's he's not skinny and and he looks like this sort of Ashen Kutcher sort of version of him. That was his younger sort of um, driven days. What were your interactions like with the older Steve Jobs? And I guess you shared one story already. Yeah. Uh, by the time he bought us, he was not long-haired Steve anymore. He wasn't long-haired and bearded Steve. Um, he was closer to the Steve you remember from the early Macintosh days. Yeah, he was he, he was pretty clean cut and everything. He, I'm trying to remember if at the end he had a little bit of a beard. He might have. It was pretty gray by that time. Was his hair all gone when he, when he bought you guys? Was he like sort of near bald or balding? It wasn't bald or balding. He had sh- short hair. Oh, okay. He, he, he was wearing his hair short in those days. Mm. Oh, very interesting. Craig, any recent, these are the last two questions that I usually love asking guests, any sort of recent discoveries that you've been sort of applying to your day-to-day life or work life, any sort of new integrations? Well, a relatively recent one is that for the last few years, I've been doing a fairly regular mindfulness practice with Sam Harris's app, the Waking Up app, which I highly recommend. It's one of the few, maybe the only one that is woo-free and has kind of a scientific basis. And uh, it's just been nice. Uh, As he says, the ability to decide how long you stay angry is like having a superpower. It comes in really handy when driving. I'll put it that way. Ability to, you know, get angry and then, yeah, okay, let it go. Any other new things I've been doing? As I get older, I'm 68 now. And one thing I'm enjoying about getting older is that there are just fewer and fewer fucks given. I don't have to care that much. Turns out a lot of stuff just doesn't matter. A lot of my philosophy can be summed up by a classic Far Side cartoon. I don't know if you've seen this one. It's a couple of bears in a circus. Do you know the far side, the, the Gary Larson cartoons? Oh, if you've got a treat coming, look those up. There are a couple of circus bears who have these muzzles on, and one of them has just pulled the muzzle off his face and says, well, hey, these things just come right off. And uh, it turns out a lot of life is just that. Hey, these things just come right off. You don't really have to care. And I've been enjoying teaching. It, uh, I joke that it took me 30 years at Pixar to get qualified to do the job I'm doing now. Being surrounded by you know young twenty somethings uh, simultaneously makes me feel old and keeps me young. So that's been nice. That's beautiful, Craig. Yeah, I guess. What's your main sort of focus for the next six months? Anything you sort of plan to double down on and do more more of, or just spend more time with? The things I'm behind on, you mean? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I've got a writing project that I'm way behind on. I'm I'm doing a rewrite on a screenplay that's getting a little interest, kind of a contained horror film. And uh, I may try to get something going with another little horror film I wrote that'll be a little bit more expensive to make. So who knows? That and I do audio work. I just finished doing a mix on an audio drama episode for Earbud Theater, which is... Uh, an audio drama podcast that sort of like audio twilight zone i guess so those are the kind of things i'm working on that's awesome craig craig where can our audience get more of you if they want to sort of get more of craig what's the best place for them so where do the masochists go i'm still spending time on x formerly twitter i don't know how much longer that'll that'll go on oh i should plug my book i guess uh, a subject that we haven't even 
talked about. I wrote a book about having a good relationship with food. It's called, here we go. It's called Relax and Enjoy Your Food. Save your money, your health, and your sanity by separating fact from flapdoodle. It's kind of a, it's a short little science-based look at nutrition and why you should not worry about a lot of the stuff people want you to worry about. Oh, so it's the opposite. Like it's, is it about sort of eating specific foods or is it saying you don't need to be that specific? You don't have to be that specific. Here, here's, here's the short version. Uh, there, there are a couple of short ways to look at it. One is uh, what you eat today doesn't matter, but what you eat this month does. And the, the diet advice I give is enjoy a variety of foods, mostly plants with plenty of fruits and veggies, not too much and not too little. And almost anytime someone's giving you advice more specific than that, they're selling something. That's the short version of the book. That instantly made me think of Steve Jobs and how he became a vegetarian. I, I heard stories of when he got cancer, he was just eating fruits or something, he had a fruit-only diet. Very sad. He, yeah, the wellness industry or the alternate, alternative medicine industry or whatever you want to call it does a lot of damage when it gets people to follow them and buy their stuff instead of getting real medical help. And it saddens me greatly that we probably lost Steve way earlier than we had to because he tried treating his cancer with diet because he got some bad advice. And it, it just goes to show that really smart people can be fooled, right? Never think that the people who are doing this stuff are dumb. It doesn't mean they're dumb, but there are a lot of people working really hard to convince people that there are such things as superfoods, that you have to eat this diet or that diet. One of the things I say in the book is that if your diet has a name, it's probably bogus. Yeah, because I always hypothetically think of like, you know, what if I got cancer? Like, you know, knock on wood, hopefully that doesn't happen. The thought of going straight to chemo seems very scary. And, 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 and I sort of often think of like, what if I, you hear stories of people starving it out over a five-day fast or apricot seeds or these superfoods or blueberries. But is chemo the much better route? What your oncologist says is probably the better route whatever that happens to be. It may or may not be chemo. There are a lot of amazing new cancer treatments coming out. There are some immune system approaches coming, and even it looks like mRNA, which has been such a miracle on COVID, may have ways of helping with cancer also. But go with the science. Go with what real medical experts are saying, not randos on the internet. And if you find a website uh, with a shopping cart on it, never take medical or health advice from it. Just walk away. Even if there's, especially if there's a, a picture of a doctor in a lab coat with a stethoscope or something, red flag, <clears throat> just stay away from those. If, if they're selling books and supplements and things like that, that's not what you want. Go to a real doctor. How about like, have you looked into stem cells? That's something I've heard pop around a lot and hearing about how like it but then it's not really advocated by doctors in America. So there, there feels like I'm always like, you hear about all these amazing new technology that's not sort of advocated by sort of American doctors, but they're sort of alternative and they seem to, yeah. You mentioned how scary the thought of chemo is. And yeah, cancer is a really scary diagnosis to get, obviously. And there are unscrupulous people who use that fear to try and sell you on stuff. And a very common pseudoscience technique is to take 
a phrase from some valid research. People are researching stem cells. This is true. There may be promising treatments coming from stem cells. As far as I know right now, there's only one stem cell treatment that's actually working. I think it's uh, used in eyes. But they'll take that and say, we've got stem cells, and they'll charge you, you know, all kinds of crazy money, and they'll inject stuff in you, and it won't do any good. So that's why I say be, beware of anybody trying to frighten you into buying something. Or if anyone tries to frighten you away from a food or an ingredient, don't trust them. I'll go ahead and we'll link the book in the description below. I love the cover art, by the way. We'll also sort of put your... Oh, you found it there? Um, oh, when you showed it in the... Oh, yeah. That uh, Jeff Pigeon, who I mentioned, uh, he's an uh, uh, artist at Pixar. He, he did the cover for me, which was awesome. Yeah, it's a very, wow, I did not know that was done by a Pixar artist. That's very cool. Yeah, any other places or any other things you'd like our sort of audience to sort of reach out to you on or get to know any other sort of things that... Not that I can think of, really. Um, as you can tell, it's easy to get me talking. If someone someone gets in touch, I'll talk your ear off. But uh, other than trying to get the book out there, I'm not... Uh, not necessarily trying to get people to get in touch, but they're they're welcome to. I'm not I'm not hard to find, as you probably found. It wasn't that hard to track me down. If you know how the internet works, you'll find me. Thank you so much, Craig, for your time today. I love how passionate about you are. You have so much. You have this breadth of experience. Like you're one of the OGs, the founding sort of members, and we're just so like it feels like you know the return of the Jedi, where I sort of go to the island and I meet sort of Luke Skywalker, one of the originals. Like that's what it feels like. It's you're know, like from the sort of like from the good old days, I guess. And it was really fun unpacking all that story, and it's super cool to just see that you're just sort of having fun and sort of going day to day, just, you know, just trying to have fun and not sort of give any fucks. Yep, that's the deal. Awesome, guys. So this is another episode of the podcast. Hopefully you guys got some value on today's episode. I had a blast today. Please send me a message on Instagram or just leave a review. I'd love to get your thoughts. Yeah, hopefully you guys got some value on today's episode and I'll see you guys next week with another podcast. Peace.